Okay. Uh, Zevon did not like it. <laughs> no, just let, just shoot from the hip. Okay. Okay. Hello and welcome back to Famous Last Words, a filmmaking podcast. Um, sometimes we talk about our own films, sometimes we talk about other films, sometimes we may in the future talk about filmmaking techniques. We don't know. Yeah, we don't know. It's our podcast. It's our podcast. We're going to do whatever the hell we want, the 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 damn heck we want. <laughs> the dang heck. The dang heck. <laughs> uh, we are, according to the Commonwealth of Massachusetts, and we're going to do this for two episodes in a row, married. Yes, not not related by blood. Not really, but that would be weird. Um <laughs> But you know, according to the world, not 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 too uh, surprising for Americans, though. Um, so today we are talking about a film that I liked very much, and uh, for some reason people think it's incendiary. We are talking about Todd Field's, you guessed it, Tar. If you're here, then you already know who she is. Lydia Tar is many things. As a conductor, Tarr began her career with the Cleveland Orchestra, Chicago Symphony Orchestra, the Boston Symphony Orchestra, until she had last arrived here at our own New York Philharmonic. In 2013, Berlin elected Tarr as its principal conductor, and she's remained there ever since. Lydia Tarr has also written music... So this movie features an absolute amazing performance by the one, the only, Kate Blanchett. Um, this movie is about Lydia Tarr, who's a conductor of the New York Phil, but she's also the conductor of Berlin Philharmonic. Maybe she's not a music conductor of New York Phil. No, I think just Berlin. Just Berlin. Yeah, you can't... You should, I don't think that would be insane. Um, <laughs> this movie... Uh, some people have said that this movie is too inside baseball, meaning that it's too for classical music people. Us being classical music people adjacent. I loved it. Yeah. I think this movie is absolutely excellent. I think that there's a lot of moments in this movie that are near perfect cinema. Um, Martin Scorsese actually said that this movie made him, you know, there are days that he worries about the future of cinema in this movie, particularly its use of time, made him feel the future is very, very bright. Its use of time? Its you use of time. I think, I think that in this movie, the time, which is a metaphor, I've seen this movie twice. You've seen this movie once and a half. <laughs> yes. Um, because I'm old and can't see a movie in the movie theater after true. 10 o'clock. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, it, it's tough. I can't see a movie in the movie theater most times without falling asleep. Um, I don't know what happened in the middle of Jojo Rabbit. Jojo Rabbit? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. But anyway. Anyway. <laughs> <laughs> About the use <laughs> of time. Right along. Um, yeah, yeah. Uh, using uh, that, you know, things happen kind of slowly and quickly like there's different moments that play very slowly with her like a lot of it feels like it's in real time and then you start to realize that things have jumped mm. um and jump forward in time um in big swaths of time because she gets shit canned near the end of this movie um and they jump forward in time two big chunks of yeah, time that's true um so this movie uh, besides me, it, the performances are excellent. The sound design, which Todd Field and the editor kind of did on their own, mm. um, with I'm guessing some help. But they, it, the sound design is amazing in this movie. You're really aware of sound, 
It's a very quiet movie. It's a very long movie. The movie is two hours and 37 minutes long. <laughs> um, and uh, that's the big complaint is people are saying it's too long. It's too boring. They don't get it. It's stupid. <laughs> that That's a great ending argument. It's stupid. Right. Uh, <laughs> no. we, we, I think before we, I'll let you go into mm-hmm. it. I think for a second, let's take a break and not talk about the inside baseball hatred of this. Mm-hmm. We'll talk about that in a second. Let's talk about the film itself. Okay. So what did you think yeah. of this movie? Well, I also love this movie, but I really like this style of film where, you know, it's very slow and methodical and you can get to like get a in- really deep look into the characters, especially if there's one main character like in this movie. Um, and there's like, there's an eeriness to this film. Like it all, it almost borders on the same kind of eeriness that you get in like thrillers or horror, which I really enjoy. Um, but it doesn't quite go fully into that area. Uh, it just sort of touches it. And I mean, Kate Blanchett is amazing. I was just incredibly impressed by her acting, uh, especially on second viewing there's moments where she's doing a pretty long, mundane monologue, and you never once feel like this is an actor who has memorized lines and now are reciting them back. Like, she just feels so real, and it's it's just simple things. It's yeah, and not even to mention her big powerhouse part of the performance. It's like these <laughs> smaller moments. She's just incredible. Yeah, I I mean this movie to me. Yeah, the acting is incredible. The the score is great. It's you know, it's it's so embedded in it. The score and the story and everything is so embedded together that it's like you know, it's kind of like Wagner. It's like the whole work is completely under I mean, Todd Field didn't write the music, but he's it's all within him. You know, it's all mm-hmm. no one element if it changed it'd be all completely different. Um I think that um all the performances are good, actually. You know the yeah, that's her, true. her like long-suffering wife, uh, played by Nina Haas, is great mm-hmm. as the concert master of the symphony, and even the cello lady, who is not an actress, she's a cellist, mm-hmm. um, and she's good. Like she, she's like, she doesn't have a lot to do. I think the most affecting character, who has a quasi Rebecca role, is this woman. So the story follows Lydia Tarr. She's about to launch a book. That's about her life. She's about to record Mahler's Fifth Symphony, which is a huge, notably hard piece. It's one of the, you know, the Mahler scholars will have at your throat. But, you know, <laughs> it's it's a piece of music that is difficult. And it's the last one in her, like, Mahler cycle, right? Right. It's, it's, it's the completion of her Mahler cycle. She's a disciple of Leonard Bernstein, and he was very associated with Mahler. It was his favorite composer, probably besides himself. Um <laughs> And he spent a lot of his time and career and effort conducting Mahler. Mahler himself was a brilliant conductor. And Mahler himself uh, championed other people's music, conducted it, beloved it. He also did some conducting of, of many other pieces of music that championed them. And Mahler was thought also to be an amazing conductor, an amazing force of music unto himself, not just for himself. So he's not just a composer. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, this is something that I talk about a lot because I, I like the subject and I like classical music. Classical music is a lineage. And it is a lineage of you have a teacher, I have a teacher, they have a teacher, that teacher was Beethoven. And it's like 
we are not that many far steps away from the from the absolute masters of this world of this classical music world and in this movie there's a lineage to Bernstein that was her mentor and onward and onward and when the Me Too movement became you know got on its feet and a lot of people were being held responsible for their actions which is a which was a great and time and good thing to happen it created it i i think i've talked to people who said that created a distance between them and the students people in music edu- education that mm-hmm. because like i growing up in as, as as a student in the music world i didn't have an abusive teacher nothing like lydia tar nothing like you know jk simmons and whiplash um i had all very lovely and warm teachers and one teacher in particular who i won't name now who's who's passed away he our relationship definitely i mean there was times that he was drunk or you know really in some kind of way that affected my lessons with him he would not show up for our lessons and it became you know but i wanted to learn from him so i went the extra mile and i feel like in this the downside of cancel culture is that he would be fired and he had so many i learned more from him than almost any teacher i ever had and uh i think that this movie tries to get at that feeling gets it gets at that we you know musicians are part of a long line a lineage mm-hmm. and that's important and i know that was a bit of a tangent i'm but, sorry no it's not because i think it's this movie has a lot to say a lot to say and it doesn't it tries really hard not to pick sides it tries to like because like you said like you um like you got a lot out of these teachers and it it's changing you know the way education works sometimes but at the same time like there is a very big and strong argument that like he should have been fired and that there are some things in the especially classical music world that is very abusive not even physically not even sexually but there are abusive attitudes that carry on that create you know the talented monumental people that like grace the stages but it's really terrible for the human side of everything and i think you know the anything with a art form and this intense uh you know falls in the same trap but i think tar is trying to comment on that without saying this is good this is bad here's how you should feel like it really really tries to stay out of it and kind of let let the viewer explore mm-hmm. these people and their scenarios and that's part of the reason why it's so long i think <laughs> yeah for sure um i mean i think there's a lot of people out there that are saying this movie is siding on a side of cancel culture and i think it's really not and and it's saying it's it's it'd be really easy not easy movies are all hard to make it'd be easy to make a movie though about a character that's like oh she's she's sexist and she's abusive and she's terrible. Let's cancel her. And they cancel her. And the end of the movie feels like this triumph. They've taken down the anti, the hero, the anti-hero. They've taken down the antagonist. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, she gets what's coming to she, her. She gets shit can. Like she has a, her whole life that she's built up. Her entire identity comes crashing down because of she's being accountable for the things that she did. That was an abusive power. And, and she did some shit, shit, shit things. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the movie, the movie's a fucking dream for a number of reasons, but that we've already stated, but one of them that I love, why I love this movie so much is 
when I'm writing a movie, ours or a script or whatever, a spec script, I am always kind of thinking to myself, like, how much stuff do I need to be hit over the head with? How hard do I need to hit the themes of the, against the movie? How many scenes do I have, you know, using a baseball movie, for example? How many scenes of, like, man, baseball is really the best because it reflects who we are as a people. We overcome. We always root for the underdogs. Blah, 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 yada, yada, yada. How many scenes of that do you need, like, the catcher being like, wow, you just need to take in playing on this field. Think of who's come before us. How many scenes of that or mm-hmm. that variations of that scene are in a lot of movies? How many scenes do they have to restate the stakes? How many scenes do they have to restate the themes and what they're up against? And a movie we're talking about next week, Everything Everywhere All at Once. That movie, and one reason that I found it challenging, was it restates and restates and restates and says it again and says the same thing over and over and over again mm-hmm. that the movie is about it. In this movie, Tar... You do not need do you. The more viewings, it gets better because the script is so tight, and it says, "Hey, there's a line of dialogue that she says offhandedly that has major implications, or that Adam Gopnik says in her New York Times thing that makes you think about it the second time around when you know what's coming to her." Because there's a scene, because you could say, and they don't play it up near the end of the movie at all, that she's done so much good for so many other musicians and so many other ladies in the classical music field that like, yes, a negative read on this movie would be like, Oh, she just had that fellowship so that she could groom young women to have, have sex with them. But I think it's the exception, not the rule because I don't think she's having a sexual relationship with her assistant. No, I don't think so either. And, but she fucks her over (laughs) in terms of the power dynamic. She fucks her over. She, yeah, she fucks her over even though it's it's what's coming to her. But like, I don't know, maybe my view is a little bit twisted. That seems like something that would totally happen in the classical music world. Oh, yeah. Or anywhere. But Right. If you found, if you were the boss of someone and you found they had, you had they had not done what you had said for them to do, they'd probably not get the promotion. Because that's why she doesn't give her the promotion is she hasn't deleted the emails from the, the conductor lady who's killed mm. herself. Yeah. See, that's a good example of like, this movie is subtle, but it's pretty effective. Like, you definitely understand more by repeat viewings, which I enjoy movies like that. Um, but you get enough of it during the first watch that it doesn't inhibit your experience of it, but it just enhances it the more you see. Because I, I guess I didn't put that together completely, um, that that was part of the reason. I thought it was just, you know, she was kind of leading her along, making her think like she would get the assistant conductor position if it became available and then it became available and she was just like well no never mind <laughs> like, right um but yeah i mean back to your point about like it's not hitting you over the head with a lot of things i really enjoy that um i think they cut out a lot of this movie even though it's still so long um but they chose to get rid of things that you didn't really need they kept in some of these small things that were important to the story and the character building that maybe you don't realize the first time or you have to think about it but they're important um like one thing i got the second viewing that i definitely didn't get the first viewing uh, despite my slightly falling asleep, um, <laughs> is the way they portray the 
power dynamics between men and women in this film is like mm-hmm. completely the reverse sometimes of what you would think like um a lot of the men look up to Lydia Tarr or they're kind of like seen as washed out um to a point where she actually is gaslighting the I think it's the original assistant conductor right the the guy with the office the great office yeah so yeah. she's like essentially gaslighting him because she's paying for his car oh no that's the original that's her predecessor that's the, the last music director oh okay so it doesn't even matter kind of like who it's just like the statement that she is paying for his like car service but is telling him and continues to tell him that it's the board paying for it and it's just such a strange moment like it's such a small moment in the film, but it really like hits home the like showing that she is more powerful and and her assistant and the concert master and the head of PR and all these other people are strong women. Um, but it doesn't make it just because they're women doesn't make it right. Like she shouldn't be <laughs> gaslighting people and, you know, any other thing that you would do to like keep your place at the table. Yeah, I think that you're right. And I think that that's a really interesting choice. And this is kind of a great time to pivot to inside baseball stuff. So um, buckle up. (laughs) Um, I have heard a number of classical music people, colleagues, hate this movie. And that point right there was one of the points that, again, these people will all have to remain nameless. That point right there that there's all these women in power throughout the organizations. Mm -hmm. Somebody said to me at a organization that has women leadership or has had women leadership mm-hmm. that that just took them out of it they're like there's no there's no orchestra that would have all these women in positions of power it just doesn't make sense yeah well this is part of the problem <laughs> and that took them out of the movie they could not enjoy the movie because there's so many women in positions of power wow that just blows my mind because there are definitely moments uh that are not classically music classical music world accurate and most of them serve for the plot. Like um, the one that really stuck out to me was like they do blind auditions, which is uh, supposed to, and you should explain it because you know it better. Yeah, so blind <laughs> auditions are, they happen in the movie. And blind auditions are, so if you've ever wondered how a musician joins the orchestra, the way they join the orchestra is they are audition and it's called a blind audition. They audition behind a screen. And oftentimes they often also audition on like a a carpeted floor in the concert hall and a panel of musicians and music director hide behind, sit behind the screen mm-hmm. and evaluate you based on these auditions. And it's supposed to be so it's not, it doesn't discriminate against people who look a certain way or a certain gender. It's supposed to judge you simply by musicianship. Yeah. So it's supposed to be like pretty anonymous. Uh, and then, so the thing that stuck out is part of the plot. She needed to see the heels of the woman who is auditioning to be a cellist. Or no, she's auditioning to do the solo, soloist. No, yeah, she, no, she's auditioning to be a, a section member. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, but anyway, you see her heels, and earlier in, like, the two scenes before, those same shoes are in the bathroom with Lydia Tarr, and so she notices the heels, and he, she gives her the the job, essentially. So... You know, that's an inaccuracy that I'm okay with because even though it's completely wrong and could never happen, it needed to happen for the purpose of the story. 
But like what drives me crazy is that someone said that the thing that is drives them crazy about anarchy is like the fact that there's too many women in power. Like Yeah, I mean the the blonde audition scene, uh orchestras bend over backwards to prevent that kind of thing from happening. And I think that you would be even asked not to wear shoes that were like that. That would make so much noise. Mm-hmm. Um, again, we, that's how they would do things in the United States. Um, maybe it's different in Berlin or in Europe. I mean, who knows? Mm-hmm. But it needed to happen for the plot to happen. But again, not stopping the inside baseballness of this, but like, I won't say that phrase again. But like, <laughs> she is set up as someone who notices the details of glamour. Early on in the movie, early on in the movie, she does her New York, New Yorker talk and or whatever that was, and she's like a lady is flirting with her, and she's just like, "Oh, that's a lovely handbag." Oh right. And then she notices the shoes, and she notices these little details of people, and I think that that like alerts her to her femininity, like you know that she is a regular person. It also tells you by the end of the movie, and this is a huge spoiler, that she grew up kind of poor. In, in Queens or Staten Island. Mm-hmm. And she grew up, uh, you know, a working class person who's changed her name from Linda to Lydia. And that I still think like no matter how far she's come, she still has a little bit of an imposter syndrome over worrying about like, mm-hmm. you know, existing in this fancy pants world as a person who's had to come so far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And I think... They do a really good job with like, again, the script is really tight. They show all these details that you don't quite notice until you think about them. But you're like, yeah, that that's building her character. That's showing like she does notice these small things. She notices the glamour. She she feels like a real person. Um, and so I think a lot of people who are attacking this film um, are getting a little bit caught up in some of the... If, if you're close to the classical music world, you don't like something attacking your world. And if you, you know, haven't seen the movie, but you feel like you're going to hate it because you think it's um, saying cancel culture is a bad thing, then you're doing yourself a disservice. Because I think this movie allows you to think and have a dialogue with the film itself or others who have seen it. And it just really dissects human nature which is what art is supposed to be all about yeah and i think that this movie does a really good job of bringing you into her world and not judging her even though she does some pretty despicable things um an interesting thing i was thinking about and we because we just watched the teaser to cue up something to play at the beginning of this episode and so we watched the teaser um, by mistake, and the teaser has lots of footage that never made it into the fe- the <laughs> film. And so I, I'm excited for deleted scenes. I mm-hmm. hope Criterion releases this. To be honest, um, but something that I was thinking about is: Do you think this movie would be different? Because they need the the plot needs the younger cello lady to come along to kind of show her at her worst, mm-hmm. right? And I don't know what would take the the place of that but imagine the movie without that character without this cellist that she's like grooming to be you know that she's sexually attracted to imagine the movie without that and it all just kind of takes place with her preparing Mahler 5 and we're flashing back to different parts of her life or all in the process and then she's taken down all through hearsay all through like he should 
you know, she said, she said kind of moments. Mm-hmm. I think that the movie, it would be, people wouldn't like it as much because it would be much more, you know, effervescent. It would be much more like, leave it to your own thing. But, you know, what do you, what would you think of that movie if they didn't have the young cello storyline? It was just kind of like. Yeah, I think they need it. I think it's part of the whole show, not don't tell thing. Like, they had to show what could have been the same type of incident as the previous person and potentially even more women before the person, I forget her name, Sharon S. They call her S in some emails and stuff like that. But the one that she had... Oh, yeah, I don't know. The affair with, and then she killed herself, and that sort of, like, cascaded all this stuff. But um, anyway, they had to, like, show an example of potentially what happened to really get you to, like, understand and to feel it. Mm-hmm. To mm-hmm. really be like, oh, she's, like, a predator. She's, like, preying on this woman. And um, the cellist, you know, doesn't go along. She kind of goes along with it a little bit, um, and then she puts a big firm line, like, no, in the sand. Uh, and it's still weird how she's like following her and somewhat chasing after her. And she's supposed to, Lydia Tarr is supposed to be the most powerful person in this situation. And she's just so insecure. So I think you needed to see some of that yeah, to really yeah. get it. Yeah. I just think that there'd be an interesting cut with that, like, that takes that storyline out of it. Mm-hmm. You know, there's, just, and there's something interesting there that just, you know, you kind of need one without the other. Um, and I know we're kind of running out of time here, but... Uh... I have one thing to say about the editing Okay, yeah, yeah, uh, that I really liked. Because I listened to a podcast, um, oh, a podcast <laughs> called... How meta? No, I feel bad. I forgot. I think it's The Art of the Cut. Um, but they did, you know, it's all about editing. So the guy interviews uh, the lead editor and she, you know, she says that her and... Todd Fields like made a conscious effort to really think about time and and space yeah like time and what to show and what not to show and so like a good example is you know someone entering and leaving a room uh long walk down a hallway like a lot of times in this film they cut out all of that like it starts mid scene or quickly enter the room uh and then the times that they left uh, like Lydia, Lydia in particular, entering and exiting a room and taking you down through her apartment served us a really good purpose. It was either like an emotional or a character building thing. So like going into her apartment, you got to see, you know, a little bit why, about where she lives and she makes like a humorous con- comment to her wife who's, um, yeah, in the other room. And then similarly, when she walks into the boardroom, when she's essentially going to get fired uh mm-hmm. she you see the long walk to the boardroom and then they cut the almost the entire scene uh that they had shot because they were like no all you need to do is feel what she feels and be with her and you know what's going to happen so they cut out an entire scene they shot so i just thought that was really interesting uh and changed maybe the way i think about you know those long scenes have to have a purpose and maybe even the teaser the teaser had scenes they cut too, mm-hmm. you know, lots of, uh, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I think I watched a, uh, uh, a directing podcast, oh. uh, called, uh, <laughs> from the DGA podcast, uh, Todd Field talking to Greta Gerwig. And when they were editing this movie, 
the first thing they said to each other the day they would sit down because they had to do this when the second big second wave of covid came and they were like locked down against so they're isolating together mm. and they todd field would sit down with his editor and they'd say well how do we feel about her today <laughs> and let that shape how they worked that day on the cut and then look back and it was it was great it's i think the movie is exquisitely made the movie mm-hmm. is like a well-tailored uh garment it's yeah every stitch is in the right place and so if you don't you don't need to understand anything about the classical music world to enjoy this film like i really think listening to other people's reviews who don't have as much insider knowledge uh they still enjoy it because think they just trust the filmmaker and they get the points that are supposed to be made so um don't be scared of it if you're not a part of that world (laughs) right and don't be scared of it if you are a part of that world because you know i think it's a really good movie to watch and to see you know society reflected back uh yeah yeah i agree um this movie will only get better with age i think this movie is going to look this movie's not going to look like 2020 what two. I mean, mm-hmm. it will in the fashion and the cars and everything, but mm-hmm. the movie, I think, is a timeless work of art. Mm-hmm. Um, Should we do our new rating? I was just going to say that. So, uh, maybe this is a foregone conclusion, but uh, our, our categories are buy, watch, skip. Buy it is, you know, own it, love it. Watch it means uh, it's on streaming and I'll check it out. It's available on Peacock right now. And uh, skip it means, uh, you know, this really wasn't worth the time of day. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. What's your rating? And for those who don't, who don't buy things, you know. Buy it into means, it. <laughs> buy into it. It just means that it has, like, uh, watchability. Last, lasting appeal. Yeah. Um, repeat viewing, if you will. I am going to go for buy it. Which, which we already uh, did. Especially because we did. And we we bought it even without any kind of special features, which we feel like is going to come out, but we just wanted to own it right away. We will probably we will buy this twice. <laughs> yes. Um, yeah, I will say buy it. And I also kind of have a, who would I recommend this to? There's certain movies I'd recommend to certain people, parents, friends, siblings. This movie I'd recommend to anyone and everyone. Uh, so my highest rating. Um, we have a mailbag. Oh, mailbag. Nigel Bernstein says. <clears throat> oh, I heard of him before. Yeah, yeah, he's a, he's a fan. Uh, loved your Dangerous Creation Questions episode. What is the number one thing you wish you had known earlier in your filmmaking process? And to be fair, Nigel, we're, I still feel like we are at the beginning of our filmmaking <laughs> process. Like, we don't have all the answers. Um, yeah, we're still learning. We're still learning. And I think that is that, is that the lesson? Well, what's yours? Well, what, what came to you? Mine mean? has to do with... Yours is a practical thing. <laughs> yes, it always is. <laughs> Our main issue with Dangerous Creation was that we didn't quite know how long everything would take and to film. And, you know, you need a good AD and assistant director to keep you moving. And, you know, a, a certain part of their job is time management. And it's really important. Uh, and, and going into, like, a film shoot you know even in the pre-production stage like you need to listen to your ad and if they say like oh you guys are biting off way more than you can chew uh go with that concept because more you know you're always going to run out of time but more time time is a luxury and uh as much as you can get don't don't already put yourself in a quarter for when you know things go wrong inevitably so that was my big learning That's, that's good i like that 
I agree. Mm-hmm. I think that the big lesson to be learned from me, uh, or the wish one I wish you learned earlier, was yes, listening to your AD, budgeting your time, go and make a short film, uh, and say you have three hours to do it, and it's two pages long or whatever. And if you're there after six hours, you're not ready to delve into making a feature film because you need to be able to move really economically. I was just reading an article about Martin Scorsese uh, and making The Departed. Um, And Jonah Hill was talking about making uh, Wolf of Wall Street. And then he talked about Leonardo DiCaprio uh, about what it was like working with Martin Scorsese. And uh, Jonah Hill said that, he is amazing at solving complex issues very, very, very fast. <laughs> and wow. that's what filmmaking is. Because you always, you always hear about young filmmakers being like, yeah, we know I'm on hour 12 and we haven't gotten it. We've blown our, our schedule out. We haven't gotten anywhere. We still have 10 pages to go and to make our day. And, and we, you know, we've spent, whatever I said, 10 hours on a one and a half page scene or a two page scene or a half page scene. It just comes from a place of not time doing time management very well it's like and so and nothing kills your crew and your appreciation of your fellow collaborators on a project and oftentimes they're working for free or no money mm-hmm. than taking too long to do things yeah and you're <laughs> i think even on a shoestring budget of no to little money just invest in a person who's enthusiastic about logistics and they're out there <laughs> and uh timekeeping and project management because they're essential because it can't be in the director and it can't be the cinematographer because they're very focused on the art and they they're it's not their job to like think about how much time they have left it's their job to argue with the ad when they say you have only this much time left. and you have to respect the ad that they're yeah. there to help you they're not there to work against you and i do think that like you just said something that I would push back a little bit on. I think that there's a myth, um, a Gen Z myth, if you will, um, <laughs> of Gen Z. No, Gen X, Gen X, the generation before us millennials. Um, there's a myth of like the creative person cannot also be a time efficient and financially responsible person. A director is thought of as an artist, but they have to be. You can't be a you can't completely ignore time and be a good director. It just no, doesn't exist. They have to do everything. I mean, they have to be the biggest problem solver and leader and hold everything together. But I just meant on the actual set, their head is in a very specific place, and it's actually more efficient for someone else to be simply keeping time and keeping things organized, so you can move to the next step, so that the director does not have to worry about that until the AD says hey, we only have this much time left. What do you want to do? And they solve the problem together. Right. Uh, I, I think that, you know, the people who run the most amazing sets, you hear people who want to work with them over and over again, is Steven Soderbergh always finishes early. Uh, he made a no sudden move, and every single day he finished before lunch. Wow. Um, <laughs> before lunch is, a, is not noon. Lunch is whenever half the, you know, they had budgeted the whole day for something, mm. and they finished like halfway through the day and the Cohen brothers always come in mm. early mm. if early nice and uh they're often having to be convinced of at least doing a second or a third take because <laughs> they often do one take and they're good see i hate the one take too though so. yeah i know i know <laughs> Teresa, you, you you like a three taker i do you like three takes three takes is nice um and I, I i do firmly believe it's different strokes for different folks but 
time management is always a thing. You know, we all look up to David Fincher because he can do 900 takes or Stanley Kubrick because he can do 190 takes. <laughs> um, but, you know, chances are you won't be able to use those kinds of budgets and time as a luxury like that early in your career. So don't kid yourself. Yeah, don't do that. That's excessive. And unless you're really experienced, you uh, you won't know what to do with many, many takes. It's mm-hmm. hard. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. Well, it's been so great talking to you, Teresa. I'm playing out. I'm playing out our music. <laughs> oh, yeah. We're being kicked out yep. of our own podcast. I'm Andrew. I'm Teresa. Tune in next time when we talk about Everything, Everywhere, All at Once, a movie that has 11 Oscar nominations. Bye-bye. <laughs>